And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished." And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, 
Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I cannot go on. I just simply can't make it. You ever say those words? Boy, I sure do. You know, becoming a follower of Christ, did it make your life easier? Well, maybe in some ways it life became a little bit more bright. But in some ways, man, it would actually just be easier to throw in this, the towel of this Jesus stuff, yeah? I mean, God calls me to say no to the things that are so good-looking in the world that would relieve the tension a little bit, right? Would give a little bit of sense of relief of the pain. And God says no. Or standing on the truth actually gets other people to dislike me. Can't I just fudge a little? It's a painful world. And John, in his revelation, this book wants to give the church endurance to run the race with faith all the way to the end. And in, in our section, actually, 12.1 to uh, 15.4, and in particular, 14.1 to 15.4, is going to answer uh, the question for us in a particular way. How are we supposed to endure to the end despite the hardness of the pilgrimage? Now, before we get into our text this morning, this morning we're just going to cover verses 1 to 13. Uh, let, me, let me step back a little bit uh, and give us the bigger picture once again. Because I, I think, actually, if you can see the bigger picture of 12.1 to 15.4, uh, and you can see it clearly, that the, the passage actually becomes quite straightforward. Uh, and you might even walk away and say, man... One of the most practical passages in the Bible is Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 to 15, 4. So in in our passage, uh, John is trying to show that the pilgrimage is difficult. I I like the term pilgrimage. Pilgrimage has the idea of the destination. You're on a journey to a destination, right? But the thing with our destination, the journey that we're on, it's it's not headed towards anything of this earth. Right? We're, not, we're not longing for this retirement age that finally life will be happy. Or at least we shouldn't be. Right? Or that's going to make us finally have it all. We're not longing for a relationship to finally get fixed and then we'll finally be happy. We're not longing for a specific career that that's finally going to give us relief from the pain. No, the destination is by far 
uh, greater than that. By far greater than anything the world can give us. The destination is the celestial city where we're with God. Right? We're looking beyond this earth. So I, I like the word pilgrimage. Uh, I, I also like it because the idea of a pilgrimage to me has the sense of difficulty. Twists and turns along the way, right? This is a difficult, it's a difficult pilgrimage on this earth. And actually, you don't, you don't have to be a believer to experience that, right? Everybody knows that the pilgrimage is hard. Just turn on the news, right? Get involved in people's lives. Ask people what their fears are. Ask people what dreams have been shattered. There's a lot of pain in the world. Pilgrimage is hard. But uniquely, John wants to point out in chapters 12 and 13 why there's a unique difficulty for the church. And that would be, in chapter 12, we saw that the devil himself, the dragon, hates the church and wars against the church. Right? If you remember, uh, the, the, the dragon wanted to first eat the baby, the male child, in the opening of chapter 12, the Christ himself, but remember the, the child was caught up to heaven and then he went after uh, Michael and the angels, but he was thrown down to the earth and then he went after the woman, Mother Israel, but she was given wings like an eagle to fly away to the wilderness, remember? And then, so he, he threw water out of his mouth to try to drown the woman and what happened? But the earth opened up and swallowed the water. And instead of the dragon finally realizing like, okay, I can't defeat God and his people, what does he do? It stirs him up more. And at the end of chapter 12, 12, 17, we're told that the devil went off to make war on the offspring of the woman, to make war on the church. Now, 13, chapter 13, is going to demonstrate how the devil makes war on the church during this pilgrimage. He's, he, has, he has three tactics or three agents that he uses. We meet two of them in chapter 13. The first one is, is beast number one. And all these agents kill the church. We, we see that in each of them. But they, they do it in particular ways, and they attack the church in particular ways. Beast number one is this hideous, just absolutely hideous beast. Blasphemous names written all over it. Uh, and it's blaspheming God, slandering God, slandering God's people, terrorizing the church, sometimes taking the church captive, sometimes slaying the church, but just constant barrage of hatred spewing out. And this, when you picture this beast, you should picture this hideous, crazy beast kind of attacking uh, all he can. And then we meet a second beast in the second vision, 1311. And this beast is sly. It, it looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Now, I don't think he speaks like a dragon, like, ah, like that. I think it speaks like the dragon in Genesis 3. It's deceiving, and that's actually what, how it's described throughout that section. It deceives. It gives false ideas about man, about the world, about God, about what's right, about what's wrong, about this, about that. Anything to deceive and distort the truth so that people move away from God and go to worship the dragon. Right? It's deceitful. It messes with the brain. It looks good. It might even go up on television and, and proclaim a little bit of truth, like some TV preacher. All an attempt to bring down the church, distort. Yeah? 
There's a third agent, though, that actually gets introduced in our text today in 14.8, and that's Babylon. It's just thrown out there real quick. Fallen is Babylon. Babylon's going to come back up in 17, and Babylon is, is there called the great prostitute. She, she is the seduction of the world. She also uh, has the blood of the martyrs on, on her hands, but she, but she seduces the world. She tries to seduce the church. Come, come. You don't want to follow that boring old God, do you? Look what he keeps telling you no to. I mean, if you eat of the tree, you'll, you'll be like God. He's trying to keep something from you. It's the same old game. And of, of course, that's exactly what the church in, earlier in the book is experiencing, right? Smyrna, Philadelphia, is just taking the onslaught of the first beast. Just absolute oppression, hunger, martyrdom. Then you have the church in Laodicea, totally seduced by Babylon. Right? They say they're rich, they don't need anything, but God says you're absolutely poor, you're spiritually bankrupt. You've been dulled, your senses have been dulled by the world. And you're in bed with Babylon. And you're in great danger. And then you have the churches like Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, who are really with this first beast being being deceived by partial truth, partial error, that false teaching beginning to come in and seduce the church. And John, that's why he opens up his letter and it's in chapter 1, verse 9, saying that he is in the tribulation. Right? That's what this is. This is a, a, the tribulation that the church is going through that in John's day, in our day, and until the Lord comes again, it is a crazy, difficult Pilgrimage, because everywhere we turn, there's the beast. There's beast number two. There's Babylon trying to take us down. But, of course, the book, if you've been following along, the call of the book is to conquer. Despite that, yes, it's a hard pilgrimage, but the church must conquer. That's at the end of every letter, chapter 2 and chapter 3. To him who conquers. Right? And in particular, in our text, verse 12 of 14 says, here's the call of endurance. We must endure or patiently endure. We saw it in chapter 13, 10 as well. There's this necessity of endurance. Or you might say it this way. If we do not endure, we will not get to the celestial city. Right? It's only those who endure. It's only those who conquer who remain faithful to Christ all the way to the end, those will make it to the city. The rest will experience the wrath of God. And so we know it's necessary to endure. Uh, Also, for those who are truly blood-bought by the Lamb, there's a desire to endure. If you are here today and you love the Lord Jesus, there is something in your soul that says, you know what, yeah, I know the difficulty, I know the pilgrimage, I know it's hard, I want to make it. I, I, want, I want to make it to the end. I want to remain faithful. But there's the opening, I can't. How am I going to do it? It just never gives up. How am I supposed to make it? And here's where John wants to, in this chapter, to say, no, 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 no. It's Possible. 
It is possible to make it. Not only is it necessary, not only do you want to, but I'm going to show you how it's possible. I'll let, let me show you how to fuel faithful endurance in you. And that's where I think John is actually going to go uh, from 14.1 all the way to 15.4. Keep hammering this truth. And it goes something along the lines of this. That considering the post-pilgrimage realities, we find patient endurance for this pilgrimage today. Or you might say the, the reverse. We find endurance for the pilgrimage today by pondering the realities to come. That's exactly what I think John's going to do in 14.1 to 15.4. He's going to give us five more visions. From 13.1 to 15.4, we have a series of seven visions. The first two are the beast, and then we're going to see five more. First one is positive, that only God's marked people, only God's sealed people will sing the song of God's redemption. The last one is positive, also singing, God's saints singing once again. The inner two are negative, the judgment to come. And then the one right in the middle is both positive and negative. It's the great harvest. So John's going to keep post, or bringing up these pictures of this realities to come so that as we see what's to come, John says that ought to fuel our endurance. And right in the middle there is 14.12, the call of endurance. All right, so what I want to do is I just want to read 1 to 13 again. So you see, pay attention here. There's two visions. One is positive, one is negative, and then we're going to walk through it shortly. Uh, but first, let's just read it and then compare them. 14, verse 1, once again. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was, it was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie, or no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with a, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, second, followed him, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink 
the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. All right, so there we have two images. You might call it uh, two paths or two peoples, or the tale of two peoples. All right, and there's, they're contrasting here, right? He's, he's, he's pointing forward to the post-pilgrimage era, after the pilgrimage. Here, let me give you two pictures Two realities, two pathways, two people groups, and both people groups are labeled. Right? The first one is labeled with uh, verse one with the name of the Lamb and the, lamb, the, the name of the Father, God the Father, on their forehead. Right? That's the 144,000. Now we've seen 144,000 already. We saw them in chapter seven. If you remember, uh, then, I'm not going to rehash this now, but we made the case that that is referring to the church. I think there's very good reason for that. Um, remember, the, we're given that census, the 12,000 from every tribe, and you can go back to that sermon or the podcast that we did on that to, to make the case of that. First John hears the number 144,000 sealed, and then what happens? He turns and looks, and what does he see? A great multitude, remember, that nobody could number. Characteristic of the book. First, he, in chapter 5, he hears of a lion. And he turns, and what does he see? A lamb. Well, was it a lion or was it a lamb? Well, it's, it's not one exclusively. It's the lion of Judah who is the lamb of God, right? So is it, is it 144,000 or is it a great multitude? Well, the 144,000, remember, is symbolic, just like the numbers in Revelation. That's always our starting point, symbolic. Numbers are symbolic. We've, one that all, everybody agrees with is that Jesus does not have seven eyes on him. It's representing the whole fullness of the Spirit of God going out into the earth. Uh, so this being a, a symbolic of, I think the best way to go with that is 12 uh, he does this in chapter 20 as well, or 21. There's 12, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, Old, Old Testament saint, 12 uh, apostles, uh, New Testament saints, 12 times 12 is 144, uh, then times 1,000. 1,000 is going to come up again in cha uh, chapter 20, 1,000-year uh, reign. 1,000 uh, is 10, number of completion, times 10, times 10. It's this, the 1,000 had has a, a great significance more in their culture, more, more than in our day. Partially it could be just because a thousand isn't a big deal anymore. Right? If, if you say, you know, you, 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 know, you got a thousand dollars from, you know, your tax return, it's like, that. well, that is really cool. 
that's not, it's not going to hold you over for the next three years, right? It's, it, it just doesn't have that big of a, a number for us. No, in those days, it, it, it did. A thousand meant something uh, big. And so 144,000 uh, representing the church with the name of God. They're labeled with God's name on their forehead. And they're also called the first fruits down in chapter, uh, verse 5 of 14. And in their mouth no, was no lot. Uh, uh, they've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. Again, first fruits represents a whole, right? Uh, we were just, uh, I was with the kids this past week at a softball game. We picked up some sunflower seeds. Uh, my oldest daughter opens the bag of sunflower seeds and says, Dad, you can have the first ones. Right? And I said, ooh, I get the first fruits. The first fruits, meaning, what is, why does she want me to have the first ones? She says, because you, you bought them. You get the first ones. They're special. Right? First fruits, that's what it represents. You go to harvest and you say, ooh, the first tomato of the year. It's a special one. It, but it represents the full harvest, right? It's not, you're not supposed to hear that and separate them. It's the first fruits. And this 144,000 representing the church, the sealed people of God. Now, I think another strong argument for it is that they're contrasted in the second vision. With who? Well, it's with another people group that also has a mark on them. If you look at 14 uh, verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. This is coming from the end of chapter 13, right? The beast, the second beast, beast made everyone who would not worship the beast, or uh, to, no, everyone who was not marked by the beast couldn't buy or sell. Remember, that was the church, but everybody else had the marking, right? So you have two people groups. Everybody's labeled. You're either part of the, the, those who worship the beast and you're marked with the beast, or you worship the lamb and you're one of the 144,000. Now, what demonstrates this is who your allegiance is to. Or you might say in the reverse, though, the marking demonstrates the allegiance or uh, it shows who you belong to. Staying with the second vision there, look at verse 8. Those who are marked demonstrate that they, their allegiance is to Babylon. You might say they've gotten in bed with Babylon. Look at verse 8. Uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has... She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's the idea of those who are marked by the beast have, have gotten in bed with the world, you might say. Ah, just so you see that a little bit clearer, go up to chapter 17. Just so you see how John's doing this. Chapter 17, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Uh, verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the great judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So you see this, this great prostitute who in verse 5, Babylon the great, is called Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. This uh, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, or those who dwell on the earth have become drunk with her sexual immorality. It's, it's this idea of those who have the mark of the beast are, are sleeping around with Babylon. They're, they've been seduced by the world. They've been seduced by Babylon, and they've given their allegiance to her. This is, this is the great uh, way the Old Testament often does this. This idea of if to, to move away from God is to commit sexual immorality. 
because we are, we are called to be the people of God, to be married to God, if you will. So it's spiritual, sexual adultery, right? Spiritual adultery. And those who are marked by the beast have gotten in bed with, with, with the devil, with Babylon. Contrasted with 144,000, who are they? We're told that they've remained virgins. They've remained pure. They're not getting in bed with, with the enemy. They're not getting in bed with the world. Right, this is the great contrast. That's what he's, that's what he's doing there with the, uh, the, vir, vir, like the virginity piece. And then he spells that out in verse 4. Uh, they have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is they who follow the lamb. Instead of doing, getting in bed with the world, they follow the lamb. Wherever he goes, they go. And in their mouth was no lie, for they are blameless. So they have two allegiances, these people that are marked, and it shows the two futures that they both will experience. Those who are marked by the beast, their future is called out in verse 10. Those who have the mark of the beast, he will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The cup of God's wrath is... It's Old Testament language that the prophets like to use it. Jeremiah uses it. It's the idea of God has this cup and it keeps being full or filled with the wrath of God and he's going to give it to the enemies. And they must drunk and, uh, drink it and at times the prophets talk about it kind of making them stupor, but it makes them stupor with the wrath of God that eventually destroys them. It's actually a quite terrifying picture there, yeah? And then he says, tormented. They will be tormented. He says it twice. Verse 10, verse 11. And they have no rest. Day or night. Now remember, in 13, these were the people. They received the mark of the beast, and they could buy and sell. Right? Life on earth was actually, wasn't that bad for them. John's showing a reversal here. But those who receive the mark of the beast on earth, though you can buy here, you will be tormented. You will drink the cup of the wrath of God. Contrasted, once again, with the 144,000, where do we find them, 14.1, on Mount Zion? Mount Zion is referred to as God's holy hill. Psalm 2, you might remember this royal psalm. God, God will... Uh, put his king on Mount Zion, his son. It's not meant to be simply an earthly mountain. If you keep going uh, by verse 3, they're not on the mountain simply, but they're before the throne of God, before the elders, before the, the four living creatures, these 144,000. Mount Zion is representing the eschatological, the end time place of God, where God is with his people. And what are they doing on Mount Zion? Verse 3, they're singing a new song. New song, uh, this is the way the psalmist would say, uh, sing a new song to the Lord. It's, it's a way of saying another act of grace God has done, and therefore let a new song come out of our mouth. And what is the new song about? Well, he tells us twice that these are the people who have been redeemed, redeemed from the earth. They've been rescued, and they are now with God. And then if you go forward, verse 13, it gets contrasted with 
Those who have the mark of the beast have no rest. What do we see in verse 13? Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. So you have these two contrasting visions of what is to come. If you have the mark of the beast, if you've gotten in bed with the world, you will drink the cup of God's wrath. But if you endure, if you stay faithful to Christ and refuse to get in bed with the world, though it will be hard, though it will be painful, you will sing a new song. You may not be able to buy on earth, but you will sing the song of redemption in glory. And that's why verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now that phrase, in the Lord, is key, right? He doesn't say, blessed are the dead who die. But blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, because this is their great end. So if you're here this morning, and you are blood-bought, you are going to be one of the people, one of the 144,000, singing to the Lamb forever. Now John, according to this passage, I understand, he is trying to say, now a vision like that, seeing the realities that it's either, you'll either be singing to the Lamb or drinking of the cup of God's wrath, that future vision ought to fuel endurance for today. That should empower you for today to walk faithfully with Christ. That should empower you for the week to walk faithfully with Christ. Now, if you're sitting here, my guess is that at times you say, I, I, I didn't feel nothing. I didn't feel no power come into me. I still have the hard thing coming this afternoon. I still have these things swimming at me. I still feel like the boat just getting crashed by the waves. This, that message is not solving the problem. And so I, I asked myself the question as I meditated on the text. I said, why, why? Why does this news of this wonderful reality to come or the terrifying reality that we're, is, is being avoided because of, the, because of the, the blood of the Lamb on our behalf, why does that news not empower me to endure always? I sat down and I came up with 14 reasons why. <laughs> Nick was laughing at me this week because I, I come up with these lists. So we'll go through six and see how, how they come out. Six reasons why I experience, why I feel like, man, why, does, why doesn't this message empower me? Why don't I feel strength from it to endure? Because John clearly wants us to, to find endurance from this. The first one is that sometimes we wait to prep our hearts for the battle until we're thick in the battle. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we, we assume that right when we're thick in the battle, we can just kind of zap and go, oh man, life is so hard, but I'm going to be in glory. And we're expecting all of a sudden that to be some magical thing, right? And we don't wait to fill ourselves with the reality first so that actually it, it kind of lands on us and, and helps from what we've already filled in. For example, let's say you were training for a marathon or I was training for a marathon and you were like uh, asking about how I'm, you know, we're, we're a couple days away and I'm just like, man, training's been really good. I'm super busy though. I, and I just like, 
and you, you're like, well, you know, how, are you feeling good about the race? How's you, how have you been eating? How have you been sleeping? And I'm like, well, I, I don't have time to eat. Like, I, I, got, I got a race. I'm training here, dude. And I'm like, I just, you're like, uh, um, if you don't fuel your body, uh, you're not going to make it through the race. I'm like, yeah, but I don't have time. Look, I'm feeling good right now. If I start feeling crummy during the race, I'll stop. I'll grab one of those gel packs. Boom. Bang. I'll be fine. You'd be like, no, nah, that, that's, not, that's not how this works. The gel pack, yes, it's good. That will help you. But if you, if you haven't fueled your body for the days going into the race, you're, that gel pack is going to do nothing for you. You're gonna, when you start feeling the pain in the race or the dizziness, it's too late. So what you got to do is fuel your body first, right? It's a simple reality. And like we can't wait to be in the thick of the battle when it's hard to then start trying to fill ourselves with this truth. It's got to start today. So when is a good day to start filling our brains and our minds and our hearts with this reality? Today, right? So God has even brought us here, right here today, to give us this truth. This is a good time. So that's one reason. Um, second, I wrote, you know, even if I am preparing myself every day, sometimes it's just the complete onslaught that never gives up. The battle just continues and continues and continues. And it just gets tiring. I, I started thinking, you know, I feel like sometimes the, the race of the Christian life feels more like I'm running on a treadmill than on the lakeshore path. You know, running on the lakeshore path, if you think of the Christian life running along the, the lakeshores, it's nice. I mean, when you get tired, you can slow down. You can take a break. There's a nice bubbler over there. You can go get a drink, you know. Maybe look at the birds for a little bit. But on the treadmill, you do, you do, you'd be doing some face plants. You don't slow down on the treadmill, you know. And the Christian life, that, that feels very much more like a treadmill to me. It's like I feel like you, you start slowing down and bam, comes out and hits you. I thought it was, I thought it was going good. Where'd that come from? I slowed down for one minute. Of course, that's because the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion, right? Or like a, a beast or seducing Babylon. Always waiting for the weak spot. And so it just never gives up. And it just makes it hard. The third reason why I feel like sometimes this post pilgrimage realities don't fuel me for endurance uh, is my, maybe we don't have enough people preaching this reality to us. When was the last time, midweek, someone from Crossway preached this news to you? Like you're, you're sitting around for coffee or you're talking with someone on the phone, text messaging, hopefully never Zoom again. Maybe you're zooming. And they, they, they didn't just try to help you get escape from pain, but actually spoke into the pain with the gospel. And are, are we doing this for one another? If, if, we're, if you're married, let, let me remind us that your, your spouse, or you to your spouse, you are meant called by God, I believe, to be the primary person on earth that preaches the gospel to that other adult in your home. Is that something we're doing on a regular basis? 
you proclaim to your wife, you proclaim to your husband the reality of the gospel and where it all leads. Can you do that this week? Could, could you find one person in here to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to just remind them of the gospel? Because sometimes I can't hear the music and I can't even get it out of my mouth to, to, to tell my heart. I need to hear it from someone else. And that's what the local church is meant to be about. The fourth reason I wrote is that sometimes uh, I'm looking for elimination of the battle rather than endurance through the battle or endurance for the battle. What I mean by that is sometimes what I'm really looking for is not endurance for the battle or for the race. I just want the race to go away. Right? And that's not the promise. Am I the only one that feels like that? No, that's especially, I think, in our day. We, we are quick fixers. We want another pill. Give me a spiritual pill and make this pain go away. Now, I don't, I don't actually think asking for the pain to go away is actually wrong, right? I mean, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, remember this, right? Paul's got this thorn in the flesh. What does he ask? Three times he asked the Lord, take this away from me. What's the Lord's response? My grace is sufficient for you. Not to get the thorn away, but to remain with the thorn. And so therefore, that, what does Paul say then? Remember what he says? I will boast in my weakness, because when I am weak, then I am strong. And in my weakness, as I endure through the pain, God is glorified. God gives me the grace to endure, and through that, God is glorified. And therefore, Paul says, I'll boast about it then. I'll boast, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes to my weakness. I'll embrace this so that God is honored. Now, I just think we need to be honest about it at times. I know I've said verbally to the Lord, I don't like that verse. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through the pain. I want the pain gone. And I think if we can recognize it, it helps expose some of the idolatry, the, the, the path that we're actually, we're actually pursuing. We just want to use the gospel to get the pain away from us versus the, the gospel to actually empower us through the pain where God gets the glory. So there's number four. Number five, I wrote uh, simply that we give too little thought to the reality of God's judgment. I mean, you saw it there, verse 10, verse 11. Twice we're told that they're tormented forever and ever. I mean, if you just think about that for a moment, that'll, that, that could make your brain explode. I, I truly get man colds. And I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a baby. I am. It's two days. And you'll, I mean, you should see it. It's, it's ridiculous. This is torment forever and ever and ever. It will, it will never give up. I mean, the pictures of the judgment that are given throughout the scriptures are horrifying. Jesus says it's like that. It's like the fire out there where where it will burn forever, but the worm actually won't die. So it's a picture of a worm burning in a fire in agony, but not actually dying, so experiencing the fire constantly. Or he says it's like, it's like utter darkness. and uh, They've done studies where they put people in the darkest places on earth, and within hours they go completely insane. 
These pictures are meant to be horrify us. And so it seems that we ought to give time reflecting on it so that it steers us away from it and gives us strength to endure. Rather than give in and get in bed with the world, where that's where the end is, say, okay, I'll hold on a little bit longer, a little bit longer to experience joy with God. And number six, I wrote, uh, our views of glory are simply too small. Right? Did, did, you, did you hear the church singing in glory? Did you see, hear, hear the, the way he describes it? Partially because I think it's the multitude. But then look at, look at how he describes it in chapter uh, 14, verse 2. Like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of loud thunder. So you're, you're supposed to... This is like the crowd going crazy, right? Like think of your loudest crowd and then multiply it. This, this, this is going to be very, very loud and very, very celebratory. And then he mixes another vision with it. It's like harpists playing on harps, right? which is gentle and beautiful. And so he's mixing these pictures to, to, to say this is, this is a crowd going crazy, but in the, the most beautiful sort of way. This is, the, this is the concert you've always dreamed of. But in reality, for me, sometimes I think of glory more like, uh, more like how I would think if I won the next ticket to the Bucks game. Now compare me winning a ticket to the Bucks game to Isaiah uh, Dino. If you don't know Isaiah, he's a Bucks fanatic. Now I don't watch the Bucks. Um, in fact, I, I knew there was a game last night. I Googled real quick Bucks game, and I saw it was like 71 to 57 or something, and I forgot to actually see if they Did they win? Okay, so they were going like to the finals, right? Now, let's say, let's say I win tickets to the next game. I w- this is probably the, what, what I would do with it. I'd be like, okay, I got two tickets to the game. Oh, it's going to be, that's like five hours. Like... <laughs> I know it'll be cool. I'm, I'll probably go, but the traffic is going to be terrible. Parking's probably going to—that's probably like twenty-five bucks. Seriously? Okay, but I know it'll be a good experience, so I'm going to do it. Then I'll probably want a hot dog. But how much is a hot dog nowadays? There. Good night. <sighs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'll go though. I'm going to go. Um, it's going to be noisy there too. I mean, I'll probably come and I'll probably have ringing in my ear or something. But I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go because I'm sure it'll be a fun time and everything. Five hours. Good night. Okay. And then all week, you know, I, I probably won't think about it much. Um, and then, you know, if somebody texts me the day before and says, hey, we got a doubleheader uh, in softball tomorrow night. You want to go? I'm like, oh, the Bucks game is tomorrow night. But doubleheader at softball. Hey. Hey, Zay, you want some tickets, man? <laughs> It's like not that important to me, right? Now, think of Isaiah getting tickets to the game. To Isaiah, he goes, dude, that is going to be awesome 10 hours because I'm going to get there five hours early and we're going to be jamming all day, right? It's like, you know, I'll I'll take out a loan for the hot dogs if I need you. I don't know. It's going to be amazing, right? And you can bet he's going to be distracted at work probably, probably every work meeting. What are people going to hear about 
I'm going to the game. It's going to consume his thinking. It's going to give him the power to go because when, when work gets hard that week, what's he thinking? Okay, I can do it. I can get through the work because this night's coming, right? The game is coming. And that's where his focus gets on. You see, this sort of be, becomes obvious, right? When we, when we have something in the future that is glorious to us, it gives us actual power to endure. It gives us joy in the endurance, and we think about it, and we run towards it, and it makes the cost worth it. It's worth the time that he'll sit uh, in, in the parking lot. And it's not worth it to me. The reality is, is, is when, when I hear of glory and it does not empower me to keep enduring, it says something about what's going on in my heart and how small I view being with God forever. Now, the reason why I think that's worth seeing is if that allows us to repent and actually come to God and say, man, God, I, maybe I am enticed by the world more than I think. Maybe this world is more appealing and I give way too little thought of glory. Would you open my eyes to see would you help me to see the shore a little bit more? Because that's at the, really at the root of it all, is that we simply do not see it rightly. Now, I'm going to close with an illustration. I shared this a couple years ago. I just think it's just such a ripe illustration. I'll probably just kind of carry it on for the next, uh, we got two more sermons in this section. Uh, but 1952, if you heard this, uh, you remember the scene, Florence Chadwick, uh, uh, swimmer, uh, we did these very long swims across channels and such. She uh, is going to make the swim from Catalina Island to the shores of California. Nobody or no woman had made this trip before. Uh, it's very foggy that day. Uh, you know the weather's not looking good, but she she steps offshore to Catalina Island anyways to make her way. There's boats traveling along to I guess they had to shoot rifles to shoot off the sharks and such, uh, and also to kind of help guide, uh, but also there in case she gets tired. 15 uh, miles into this, it's a 20, must, 20 plus mile swim, uh, 15, uh, 15 hours in, 15 hours like swimming in, in the ocean, she gets tired. The fog is thick. She can hardly even see the boats that are traveling near her. She gets disoriented. She goes on for maybe an hour or so after that, and eventually she says, just get me out, get me out. She gets back in the boat, and when she gets back in the boat, she discovers she's less than a mile from the shore. In a press conference afterwards, she said something to, along the lines, if, if I only could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she made the trip again, keeping the shoreline in view the whole time and actually did it in 13 plus, or just over 13 hours. And brothers and sisters, it's, it's just a picture that when we can see the shores rightly, it gives us power to endure. But when it gets foggy, when we can't see the shore, we lose strength. We lose endurance. And that's why we need one another to keep telling us the shoreline's right over there. We're going to make it. It's going to be a day when we sing the new song of God's redemption. Keep it in view, brothers and sisters. And so this morning, as we partake of the Lord's table, we remember that it was the blood of the Lamb, the broken body of the Lamb, that we actually drink a cup of blessing. Many will drink the cup of God's wrath. We, this morning, drink the cup of God's blessing, of salvation. Because we have the shoreline 
that is secured because of the blood of the Lamb. So we'll come forward again, come forward on the inside part of the aisle and then grab the elements and then head back on the outside part of the aisle. Um, And we'll partake together. So grab the elements and then return to your seat. Brothers and sisters, we deserve to drink that cup of God's wrath, but it's not for you, because the Lord Jesus, his body was broken on your behalf to bring you back to God. That is glorious news, and that is true of you, because the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. This morning, as we drink the cup, let us receive the promise of the new city. Let us receive the promise that we will one day see the Lamb face to face. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. And we will sing the new song of the redemption of God, purchased by the blood of the Lamb on our behalf. The Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.